You want to ramp up your imposter syndrome, come hang out with me at iFast and listen to Bill talk about training or movement or rehab for anything more than 20 minutes. Uh, You will be there. (laughs) Trust me. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to do our November-December Q&A mashup mailbag. So before we jump into this week's episode, I want to say really quickly, thank you so much for your support over the last year. I'm going to do uh, a little bit of a, a mental download towards the end of this show and a little bit in next week's episode, but before we dive in, I just want to say thank you so much for your support this last year. It has been by far and away the best year of the podcast, and I wouldn't be here without you. Uh, and along those same lines, I just want to say happy holidays. I hope you have an amazing holiday break, regardless of what holiday you celebrate, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Diwali. I mean, I can't even keep up with all of them anymore, but whatever holiday you celebrate, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get some time with friends and family members, and most importantly, just a little bit of time to reflect and remember what's most important in life. So my apologies, first of all, because the last couple weeks have been a little bit light on guests. Uh, Part of that is my own doing. There were some shows, solo shows, that I really wanted to create. I wanted to do uh, the Seven Investments show. I felt like that was really important, and I wanted to shift your mindset on what you're investing your time and your money into. I did the practical programming and coaching tips. Again, trying to give you some insights into things that I think about and things that have continued to evolve in my own approach. So I hope you've enjoyed those episodes. But part of it too is just, look, it's the holiday season and it's really hard to get people to commit to do stuff during the holidays. And on top of that, I'm also trying to get some people from the other side of the pond, so to speak. So I got some really world-class experts in the topics of rehabilitation, in knee health, in knee function, in flywheel training. And, you know, the hardest part is just coordinating schedules and getting those people booked. So working really hard to make sure that January, February, March, this first quarter of 2023 is really legit with the show. So got some awesome people coming up, very excited about it, and I hope you're excited as well. Now, I am super, super pumped for this week's episode, and if you've ever watched Lego Ninjago, uh, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it, it's hilarious, even if you don't have kids, but Michael Strahan has uh, a little skit or a little bit in there, and he just says, pumped, so whenever Cade and I are excited about something, we say, pumped, but man, I'm legitimately pumped about this week's episode because I got some really good questions. We're going to span a lot of different topics. We're going to talk about off-season training for soccer. We're going to talk about ways to keep things fresh with your Gen Pop clients. Uh, I get put on the spot and just ask flat out, do I prefer Gen Pop clients or athletes? So I think my answer there will interest you as well. And we're just going to talk a little bit about the future, like what's going on in 2023, some of my goals. And man, I just think we're going to touch on a lot of different topics. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode of the Physical Prep Podcast. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. 
And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insider's list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. All right, so without any further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. And our first question comes from Erica. Erica wants to know, for the general population, what are some tips on developing creativity, but balancing that creativity in your programs with a brilliance in the basics? And Erica, I think this is a fantastic question. I think this is something we need to be talking more about because especially in this day and age with social media, with TikTok and Instagram and everything is in these short 20 to 30 second clips, people assume that you need just an ever growing amount of variety to be successful in the gym. And I think anybody that's done this for an extended period of time, more than five or 10 years, realizes that being brilliant at the basics is what really makes you elite. And I still think back to arguably one of the best compliments I've ever gotten from a professional athlete. And I'd worked with Dwayne Allen for like six weeks. He was playing for the Colts at the time. And Dwayne was telling me, you know, I still have to go into the facility. And I talked to the guys and they're asking a lot about IFAST. Like, what is it about IFAST? And he said, the thing that I continue to say, or the way I continue to express this to them, is that IFAST just does the basics better than anybody. And like, such a subtle statement, but damn, it was profound and it really hit home. Because that's something we pride ourselves on. So, with that being said, you want to be brilliant at the basics, but who wants to be a coach that's amazing at the basics, while simultaneously boring the snot? out of their clients and athletes. Like I understand there's a salesmanship to this process. There's this ability to make things fun and engaging. So I got a few thoughts for you here, Erica, and I really hope they help. Number one, and I think this is really important to say up front, I need you to stick to your guns and realize the person that constantly asks for and needs variety might be an ongoing headache for you. And I'm just gonna put that out there early because look, there are some people that aren't great fits for IFAST, and we'll talk more about this later. But the person that's constantly like, oh, I got to do something different every day. Oh, I can't do the same thing over and over. Like that person may just be a struggle forever. So you need to ask yourself, 
Is this somebody that just needs that constant variety? They've got this training ADD. Or is this somebody that I can educate and convert? So that's the way I always think about it. For me, it's about educating and emphasize, emphasizing this role of movement and movement quality versus randomness. So I'm always trying to explain to my clients and athletes, hey, look, there's a reason we hone in on these big movement patterns, right? Squatting, lunging, hinging, pressing, pulling. There's a reason we're doing those things because they're foundational, right? They underpin all the things that we do in life. So if they're that important, it makes sense that we should get really, really good at it. So we're always trying to educate our clients and athletes as to why we're doing this. It's not just because I say so, right? It, there's a reason, there's a rationale behind it. Another thing that I think is really important is praising them for improvements in their movement. Now, chances are you're already doing this, but sometimes people need to be reminded, hey, do you remember how bad your squat was on day one? Do you remember how bad a hinge would hurt your back because you didn't understand how to do it and you were just arching your back really hard instead of pushing your hips back? I think clients and athletes alike need to be constantly reminded as to where they started and how far they've come in their progression or in their journey. So make sure you're constantly educating and emphasizing to them the improvements that they've made. Now, I'm not going to say that diversity and creativity isn't important. So for me, one of the best places to do this is either in the warm-up or it's in the metabolic work on the back end. So this is why we like to do a lot of medicine ball training. We like to do a lot of work with kettlebells. We like to just find variety in other areas of our workout. So, you know, you guys kind of know my philosophy at this point. Everybody's an athlete. So if we're going to lock in on squatting, hinging, pressing, pulling during the workout or during that R5 or resistance section, maybe an R4 in the power development, we're going to throw some medicine balls, right? Or if they're ready for it, maybe we can do some kettlebell swing variations. When we get into R6 and their conditioning, hey, you know, maybe we... We can do the standard cardio type stuff with you know, a bike or a treadmill or that sort of thing, but can we find more athletic variations and more athletic and fun things to do there? So maybe it's pushing a prowler, dragging a sled in multiple variations. Uh, you know, Again, kettlebell variations work great as a conditioning tool, battling ropes. There's so many ways you can add elements of creativity outside the confines of R5 that I think will help you keep the, the workout fun and engaging without sacrificing some of your big rocks with regards to movement. And then the final piece here is that a lot of times I think we get so caught up in this idea of being creative. And it's not just being creative. I think what it comes down to for most of the people that come in our gym, it's having fun and having great energy. And I know a lot of times this gets kind of cliche, but how do we make things fun and engaging? It starts with you. Are you coming in with a lot of energy? And maybe not, yeah, let's go. It doesn't have to be like that. Find your own style and your own energy to lift people up. The music that you play, I think, is critically important. If you're listening to Nirvana Unplugged, great album, probably not the best workout music. Find something that is upbeat, that's energetic, that everybody can kind of jive with. Be conscious of the people that are around you in the gym right? What are the the other coaches' energies like? What are the other clients and athletes' energies like? If you create that environment with yourself, 
with the music, with the right people around you, I guarantee it's going to be a fun and engaging training environment. But I want to circle back to this idea of not being for everybody because if you're listening to this show, I would say most of our audience doesn't come from the greater Indianapolis area. You're not in Indianapolis, Fishers, Carmel, Zionsville, Lawrence. You're not in one of these surrounding areas. You're from somewhere else, a different state, a different country. So you probably think, man, IFAST is just packed with people. Everybody wants to train at IFAST. (laughs) It's crazy to think about, but there's a lot of people in our own neck of the woods that know about us and have zero desire to train at IFAST. And I'm okay with that, right? Like if you just want to go to the gym down the street, zero regard for form or technique, have just like this killer training environment where Pantera is blaring as loud as possible, you know, you're snorting ammonia caps. Hey man, I've been there and I've done that and I get why you wanna be in that environment. So we're not for everybody and Erica, I would want you to understand you're not for everybody either. That's okay, try and find your people, people that jive and resonate with your training philosophy. And I think at the end of the day, you've got to tether yourself to your principles, right? You're not steadfast in the sense that like you never change or you never evolve, but tether yourself to your principles. For me, movement quality, movement efficiency has always been number one. It will always be number one. And if the people I work with can't jive or can't rock with that, well, then they're not a great fit for me. And I'm okay with that. And I'll try and find somebody that is a better fit. So Erica, I really hope that helps you out tether yourself to your principles, but at the same time, try and create a fun and engaging training environment. I really think you can get the best of both worlds. Okay, our next question comes from Jan. I believe it's Jan, so if I do not pronounce this correctly, please correct me at some point in time. So Jan wants to know, what structure in exercise selection do you use in your readiness area? You have a blueprint with your movement categories and in your strength training, so how does that look in your readiness. Now, keep in mind, I would say this is not quite apples to apples here. We're not necessarily trying to chase or develop movement patterns, but I do have a structure or a thought process here. And if you've seen my R7 presentation, either in the short form, uh, in like a presentation that I've given, or in the long form that you can find in the complete coach cert, there's really three goals to that R3 or that readiness component. Those three goals are optimizing physiology, optimizing biomechanics, and then developing specific qualities to prepare them for a training session. Okay, so physiology is all the basic stuff. Get them warm, get them loose, uh, prime the nervous system. We know heat is very, very important for the nervous system. So you got to take care of the physiology side of it. The biomechanical side, I would say, is arguably the most important for me. Not that physiology isn't, but I want to make sure that the things that we do in our two, in our resets, are being built upon in a more dynamic fashion in our three. So, for example, if we're trying to create space on the backside of the body in our two, right? Somebody can't shift their their weight back. They can't shift their center of gravity back. It's impacting them in whatever way. They can't squat deep. Uh, Okay, well, if we've addressed it in R2, it only makes sense that we want to layer it and reinforce it in R3. So maybe we do something in R2, some sort of static breathing activity in R2 where we're trying to drive air into the backside of the body, trying to create some space. 
And then when we get to R3, we're gonna do that in a more dynamic fashion. So maybe we're gonna do our rock and roll or our egg roll activity. Maybe we're gonna do some cat camels. Okay, so biomechanics are a really big part for me when it comes to R3. And then the final piece is the specific element. And this is pretty straightforward, right? Like if you're gonna go and attempt to squat 315 that day, you don't just walk in the gym and start back squatting 315, right? You start with the bar, 135, two and a quarter, 275, 315. Uh, if you're gonna sprint, you're gonna work on acceleration work. Maybe you're gonna do your dynamic warm up. You're gonna do some A skips, some B skips. You're gonna do some accelerations. Uh, and some strides to kind of get the legs loose, start priming those movements, and then you're gonna get into the actual workout itself. But I think the biggest factor for me and the thing I really want you to understand, Jan, is that I, I'm always asking myself, am I helping them restore movement options? And this is true whether we're early in the off season, where it's a primary focus, or we're at the end of an off season. I wanna make sure that I'm restoring those movement options. Okay, I want to make sure they're moving and feeling as good as possible before we settle in and we get into that training session. All right. Now, a couple other thoughts that I think are important. With your Gen Pop clients, and I'm aware of how this is going to sound, but they have to earn the right to stand up and be dynamic. Okay. So if somebody doesn't move particularly well, if they don't have great balance or coordination, well, I don't need them standing up trying to do a bunch of single leg work and falling all over the place in their warm-up. I don't think that's valuable. I don't think that's beneficial. So for my gin pop clients or my people who don't move particularly well, we're probably going to do a more ground-based warm-up. We're going to give them more support, especially initially. And then from there, as they do become more balanced, more coordinated, that they have the ability to be more dynamic then we can get into more of those movement-based progressions. And I talked about this some last week in our you know, Practical Programming and Coaching Tips podcast. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But I cover this in some depth there. But I think at the end of the day, when you're structuring a warm-up, you have to follow these general principles of progression, right? It's not just like this cookie-cutter approach. It's, hey, for somebody that doesn't move great, we're going to put them on the ground, Right? We're going to give them more support. That's why you put somebody on the ground in the first place. Reduce the impact of gravity. So we're going to put them on the ground. We're going to do slower or more static activities. And the activities that we choose are going to be less complex as a whole. You're going to make it simple, right? And then you can make it more dynamic from there. So ground-based, slower, less complex to your high-level athletes or your people that do move very well. Now it can be a more movement-based warm-up. It can be faster. Right? You can not just in pace and intensity, but the activities that you choose can be faster. And finally, you can do more complex stuff. Okay, But it's kind of like Monopoly, right? Do not pass go, do not collect $200 if you can't achieve those foundational pieces first. So start easy, start with little complexity, start really slow, make sure they can feel stuff, make sure they're moving in a fluid and rhythmic way. And then as they progress, you can make it you know, sexier and more dynamic. So Jan, I really hope that answers your question and I hope that helps you ultimately write better warmups. All right, our next question comes from Kent. And man, Kent, you're really putting me on the spot here. But Kent wants to know, point blank, which population do you prefer training? Gen pop 
or athletes. Now, before I answer, I want you to think about what I would answer first. Because, man, Kent, you're really putting me on the spot here. And, you know, it really made me pause and think about this. Because, man, I've been doing this 22 years now. And while people assume that I only train athletes, I have trained gen pop for that entire time period, right? To some extent. Like, I have trained gen pop clients as long as I have trained athletes. So, really... The easy answer here would for me to just say, oh yeah, I, I, I love training athletes. And I do. There's no way around that. I love training athletes, virtually every sport, even like obscure stuff that I've never worked with before. I love working with those athletes because I get to learn about them. I learn about their sport, the culture. Like it's just fascinating to me. But at the same time, I mean, I have some really awesome gen pop clients. Like, really awesome. Like, people that I've trained for numerous years, whether it's in the gym, whether it's online. Like, I have an online training guy who, no joke, I've been coaching for, like, 16 years now. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Now, granted, he does some martial arts, but he's not, like, world-class competitive, right? Like, he's making strides. He continues to improve and work on his craft. But... I think of him a little bit more as a gen pop client versus an athlete. So, Kent, when you ask, who do I prefer to train, here's my answer. And this is going to be a super cop-out if you think about it like this, but I think it's 100% the honest-to-God truth. The people I prefer to train is anybody that's serious about achieving their goal. That's the bottom line. Like, if you're serious about becoming a world-class basketball player, great. If you're serious about becoming the best power lifter you can ever become, great. If you're serious about getting into great shape, uh, restoring some of your lost youth, being able to run around and play with your kids and live a longer, healthier life, man, let's go. Like those are the people that I want to work with because that's who I am, right? At the end of the day, I'm constantly pushing. Like it's finding that balance of comfortable with who I am where I'm at in life, but still aspiring to be more, to be a little bit better. And I always come back to this thought process of, you know, take your your work seriously, take your craft seriously, take your training seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. And I think this is something that is 100% commonplace with the people that I enjoy training the most. They love training. They loving. They love getting after it. They love seeing that progress. And wherever that progress translates, right? Sometimes the end game is the weight room. For others, it's the field, court, or pitch. But they love to get in the gym. They love to get after it, but they don't take themselves seriously. It never feels like work. We're laughing. We're having fun. We're getting better. And so, you know, for me, I just keep coming back to I'm all about getting better personally. So those are the people I want to be surrounded by when I'm in the gym. And I think this is really important to note. And this is something that If you don't work in high-level sports, this thought may not have ever crossed your mind. But I've worked with a lot of really high-level athletes. Like, we're talking world-class athletes from lots of different sports that don't love the sport that they play. They don't love it by any stretch. They don't like practice. They don't like preparation. Maybe they like the games because they're competitive. But all of the things outside of games are miserable for them. They don't love it. They don't enjoy it. They're just good at it. So 
look, like those people aren't the funnest to train for me. And, and it may be shocking because, look, they're great. They are world class at their respective sport, but they don't love all the things that go into preparing for their sport or playing their sport. So they're not as much fun to coach as that gen pop person who just wants to come in the gym and get after it. So Kent, I hope that doesn't feel like a cop-out to you because I don't think it is a cop-out. Like that's the honest truth. Like I love coaching people who are serious about getting better. I don't care what domain uh, they come from, what sport they play, what their background is. If you're serious about getting better, about getting the most out of your body, then man, I would love to rock with you and I would love to work with you. So Kent, fantastic question and I hope you appreciate that answer. Okay, this next question comes from random person on the internet because, man, there are just too many ways for people to connect with you these days. Like, I love connecting with other coaches, trainers, athletes, people that are just interested in the work that we're doing. But, man, like, there's so many ways to connect, I can't even keep track, right? There's comments uh, in the social media platforms. There's DMs, uh, you know, there's emails. Like, it's just overwhelming. So regardless, this random person on the internet, apologize for not knowing your name, said, I loved your basketball training off-season video. I love that approach. How would you adapt that to soccer? And man, this is a fun question because I don't work in the soccer space as much anymore uh, for a lot of reasons, right? I found at some point I needed some sort of break in my coaching schedule or I literally was just burnt out. Um, but part of it too was I didn't love the fact that I didn't have as much time as I would have liked with these guys. So when we talk about this, I love reflecting on this and I'm going to have some more soccer people this, this off season. I'm kind of getting back into it a little bit. I think I've found better ways to manage my energy, but I think we have to start with a bigger question of what differentiates soccer from basketball. So when we're looking at those respective off-seasons, I think there's at least three things we have to take into account. Number one, off-season length. Number two, skill development necessary in the off-season. And number three, what I would just describe as training needs. So let's look at each of these in a little bit of depth. Number one, off-season length. If you're looking at an MLS off-season, at best you're getting two to four months. Like, I don't know if any MLS team really gets four months. Uh, Most of the guys that I worked with over the years got two, maybe three months. Worst case scenario, Chad Marshall, after they just won the MLS Cup, got a three and a half week off season before he had to report to January national team camp. So let me tell you, friends, can't make a lot of training adaptations in three and a half weeks. So two to four months tops in soccer, four to six months in the NBA or G League. So bottom line, you have less time to prepare them in soccer. Now that's a blessing and a curse. Uh, If somebody's already fit, relatively healthy, it's not a big deal. But if they're coming off some sort of injury or surgery, it's not a lot of time to rehab and recover. Okay, so off-season length is one. Two is skill development necessary. Now, at least in my experience, and I'm willing to admit that I've got a bias here because of the athletes that I've worked with. But at least from what I've seen, skill development plays a much bigger role in basketball versus soccer, 
right? The guys that I'm working with in basketball are on the court at minimum three times a week, if not five or six. They are doing something every day to improve their skill development versus a lot of the soccer players I worked with did minimal skill development. There were a lot of times they would go, you know, two or, you know, two or three months, depending on the length of their off season without touching a ball. Maybe they'd only get on a ball like the last month before they reported to camp. So I don't know if that has to do with the number of players on the field or the court. You know, obviously in basketball, you got five players, you touch the ball a lot more. Soccer, you've got 11. So you may just not be on the ball as much. It also could be some of the athletes in the positions I worked with. So thinking about when I worked with Roy Hibbert, okay? Roy, I don't think touched a basketball a lot of times for at least a month or two, which was kind of out of out of character. Uh, maybe not for him, but for basketball players as a whole. Most of my basketball guys will take a week or two off and they're immediately back in the gym and back on the court. Uh, and, and I saw similar things with like Danny and Chad, right? Danny O'Rourke, Chad Marshall. A lot of times they wouldn't get on a ball until about a month before they went back out. But whether you're looking at Roy or Danny or Chad, they were more defensive-minded and focused players. So maybe the offensive skill set wasn't imp- as important to them versus if I worked with more midfielders in soccer or more strikers, maybe they would have been on a ball more. Because I can tell you in basketball, the guards that I work with are touching a basketball every single day. They're working on their handle. They're working on finishing. They're working on their shooting. So it could just be a byproduct of the individual athletes that I worked with. Okay. But bottom line is, I think in basketball, you're going to need more skill development in your off season than you need in soccer. Then the final piece uh, is your training needs, right? So in basketball, if you look at an off season, Big focuses there are speed, strength, power, and then injury prevention, right? Because their training schedule and their competitive schedule is so condensed, injury prevention is obviously a big thing there. Uh, On the flip side, don't need a lot of specific conditioning because they are on the court almost every day and they intuitively kind of figure out, hey, over the course of the offseason, I need to get on the court, I need to play more threes, I need to get on the court and get more run. Uh, So The conditioning isn't something I have to think too much about in basketball. Now, on the flip side of that, in soccer, I find the biggest needs are like injury prevention, especially looking at areas like the hamstrings, the groin. Obviously, we want some speed, strength, and power development, but it's a little bit harder to get some of those adaptations because that off-season window is so short. If you only got somebody for two months, you really get like two training blocks, right? You get like a hypertrophy force development type block, and then you get like a force development power block, and that's it. Like that's it. And then they're back into camp. So when I kind of lay things out in basketball, most of my guys want to come in five days a week. And you can watch that video. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can kind of review that, how I structure that. Soccer will generally go five days a week as well, but it's a different structure. So generally what we'll do in soccer is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, total body lift. Monday, Friday are heavier lower body days, with Wednesday being a little bit more heavy upper body focused session. Uh, Tuesday, Thursday are generally going to be our conditioning days. That could come in the form of cardiac output. It could come in the form of tempo running. There's a lot of structure there uh, or or a lot of options there. But generally it's going to be more conditioning focused focused. 
And then thinking back, it's funny, this kind of made me think back to like some of the more intense off-seasons that we had. And there was a time when Danny and Chad were coming in. This was probably their first or, it was probably Chad's first or second off-season with me. But he came in, we had our five-day-a-week structure, but then on Saturdays, we actually had them do HICT step-ups as well. And I clearly remember there was a day I had them do 60 minutes of HICT step-ups, which is absolutely awful, but seemed to have worked, or I'd like to think that it worked because that was also the off-season. Chad got traded to the Sounders, so it must have been his first off-season with me. Got traded to the Sounders and proceeded to be MOS Defensive Player of the Year, and I believe a Best 11 team member, so one of the Best 11 soccer players in the entire MOS. So not sure that the HICT was the uh, result of that, but needless to say, him and Danny were in great shape that year. So I think a big part of this is when you're thinking about soccer offseason, this philosophy is really important to me. I think too often coaches want to show out They want to show how much they know. They want to show how fit they can make somebody. But if you're preparing an MLS soccer player, you have to understand that that season is incredibly long. If you try and get somebody in peak condition in January when they're reporting to camp, they're going to fall apart. They will absolutely be smashed by the time June or July hits. So instead, my philosophy is to, I don't want to say under-train them, in the off-season a little bit, but my job in their off-season training is to have them fit enough and healthy enough so that they can get through preseason healthy. Because a smart preseason should continue to build their strength, their speed, their power, their conditioning, so that they can work into the regular season. Because even when you get to the regular season, The research will tell you it takes upwards of four to six competitive matches before you're at peak fitness. So trying to do that really early in the offseason is a fool's errand. You're not going to be able to do it. And if you can or you try and do it, you're going to burn your athletes out. So that's the way I set up and structure our soccer offseason workouts. I hope that helps and I hope it gives you some insight as to how we do it here at IFAST. Next question today comes from Scott and really from the Complete Coach Cert group. But Scott asked a fairly innocuous question. He said, well, how do you train mountain bikers? And unfortunately, I don't train mountain bikers, but there's a guy in the group who has also been on the podcast named Menahem Brody who does train mountain bikers. So they have a little back and forth. And then I thought the discussion was over and then Menahem's like, oh, but Mike, what do you do? (laughs) And so really what I had to tell them was, well, I've never trained a mountain biker. So the real question here is, how do you train athletes from a population you've never worked with before? Because we're all going to be in this situation at some point in time. And look, 22 years in, I've had this more than a handful of times. I had my first MMA fighter when Dan New came in. I had my first bobsledder. When Alex Sprague came in, Uh, it sounds kind of random, but the first guy that didn't have an arm below the elbow, Zach Moore, right? All of these athletes, when they started with me, said, well, have you ever trained a MMA fighter before or a bobsledder before or a person that doesn't have a a lower arm before? My answer is no, I haven't, right? And I'm not going to act like I have. So 
whenever you work with somebody like this, you're not going to be 100% prepared. You're not, and that's okay. But here's what you can do. You can arm yourself with knowledge to make the most informed decision you have available to you. Okay, so you got to educate yourself first. So I think these four things can be really impactful for you as a coach. And I don't know, when I started outlining this, I was like, man, this might make for a really good article. So if you are interested in my thought process here and how I do this, let me know and maybe we'll convert it into an article as well. But the four things are, number one, when you start working with somebody new, you've got to understand the needs and the demands of their sport. And there's levels to this, right? Like what are the biomechanics involved? What is the the physiology involved? Because baseball is a lot different from basketball, is a lot different from football, which is a lot different from soccer, right? They're all field, court, team-based sports, but the physiological and the biomechanical needs are widely different. So you gotta try and figure out what are the needs and the demands of the sport first. Number two, you have to start learning about the individual. What are their specific movement limitations or issues, right? This is where your assessment comes into play, your movement assessment. Uh, If you're doing a performance assessment, try and figure out, okay, what are they good at? What are they not good at? And along those same lines, you have to figure out, okay, what's their training background? And what do they like or dislike about training? So if I'm starting with somebody new, right, new athlete from a sport I've never worked with, the last thing I want to do is write a program that's full of stuff they absolutely hate. Now, keep in mind, (laughs) there's a balance here, and I have to give them things that I know they need, but I can't just give them a whole bunch of stuff that they hate because they're not gonna enjoy it and they're not gonna write it out. Okay, so you have to figure out what do they do well, what do they not do well, what do they like training-wise, what do they dislike training-wise, so you start to pull all this information in. Number three, you have to determine how much training they can safely and effectively incorporate into their weekly schedule. So let's come back to soccer for a minute. Soccer off-season, they're not generally playing a lot of soccer. And again, a lot of the guys that I worked with didn't do a lot of on-field, on-the-ball work in the off-season. So I could do a lot with them in the gym. Like a lot of times those those soccer off-season workouts were more like 75 to 90 minutes, whereas most of my basketball workouts are 60 to 75 tops. Reason being, if you're not going to be on the pitch Man, I got a lot of time. We can work on speed and power. We can take 20, 25 minutes to work on speed and power. We can take 40, 45 minutes in the gym. We can lift some heavy things. We can hit some conditioning on the back end of that session. So I can get you in there for 90 minutes and know that, hey, if we're only going Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we got plenty of time to recover in between those sessions. Now, contrast that with a sport that's notorious for just destroying their athletes like MMA. And if you can ever get Joel to talk about this live or in person, it's just fascinating. But the culture of MMA is just do more, right? And there's very little in the way of communication. So if you're an MMA fighter, you might have a strength coach, you might have a grappling coach, you might have a striking coach. So you've got all these people, none of whom are talking to each other, all doing their own thing. So there's just this tremendous amount of stress being placed on the body. So... If I'm a strength coach for an MMA fighter and they're already training for their respective sport, right, striking, grappling, whatever it is, 10 to 12 hours out of the week, that doesn't leave a lot of room for me 
to write in strength or conditioning workouts for them. So maybe I only get two sessions a, a week for 45 minutes to an hour tops. Okay, so you have to figure out how much training can you safely and effectively incorporate into their weekly schedule. And, you know, if you're doing those things, then I think ultimately you can be pretty darn successful. But here's the most important piece of this, because I, I said four and I almost forgot the fourth. <laughs> Number four, after you've done all this, you got to determine the lowest hanging fruit and attack it with a vengeance. So... For example, a lot of times when I work with endurance athletes, and I've worked with a lot of endurance athletes over the years, the lowest hanging fruit is just force production. You give them a little bit more juice, whether it's squatting, deadlifting, whatever the case may be, a little bit more juice, and immediately they're running faster, they're more economical, they feel better. For a lot of your bigger athletes, right? And so when I'm thinking like football, I'm thinking rugby, just a little bit of aerobic development goes a long way. Baseball is another one because they've done so little aerobic development. You give them just a touch of aerobic development. Their resting heart rate goes down. Their HRV goes up. Uh, their ability to recover improves. They can get more reps in in their skill development. So your job is to kind of see the big picture. I think that's the great thing about being a physical prep coach. We can kind of zoom out 30,000 foot view what is this person lacking? And then I'm going to hit them hard with that. Okay, so those would be the four things, you know, kind of understand the needs and the demands of the sport, understand them as an athlete, what are they good at? What are they not good at? Likes, dislikes, how much training can you incorporate, and then attack that lowest hanging fruit. So again, I don't know, when I started typing all this up, I was like, I think this is pretty cool. I think it's article worthy. If you do as well, let me know and I might flesh it out a little bit more. But Scott and I, to the rest of the group, I hope you understand where I'm coming from with that. And I hope it arms you with some thoughts the next time you start training a new client or athlete. Okay, my friend, next question comes from random IG guy who DM me. And random IG guy wants to know or said, I saw your boy Tyrell Terry retired from basketball at 22. How do you feel about that? And if you don't know who Tyrell is, Tyrell is uh, an awesome young man who I worked with during the pre-draft process, basically during COVID. Uh, Ty moved here in April. And if you remember what life was like in April 2020, it was quite strange. But he basically moved into an Airbnb here in town, and we trained together for 117 sessions from April until November. So I want to start this by just saying, man, I love Tyrell Terry. Like, just a great kid, great human being, and I can call him a kid because, damn, like twice his age when I think about that. But yeah, I mean, look, dude, I spent more time with Tyrell over that six months than anybody else in my life outside of my family. We were together five days a week for basically six months straight. And man, just what can I not like about him, right? Like he loved video games. He loved sports. He was a kid. I mean, he's, when he came into my gym, he was 19 years old. Um, and, and there's just like a lot of sentiment there, right? The guy was my first NBA draft pick. You know, I've never had an NBA draft pick. And so like that was pretty cool, right? Like worked with a lot of NBA players, high level NBA players, 
but I never had somebody drafted before. So just going through that process, seeing the hype around it, um, all the things that go on behind the scenes to make that happen, just crazy. Uh, but I think the most important thing to say first and foremost is Tyrell's just a great kid. He's a great human being. Uh, but I can also say this. He's not the first NBA player. He's not the first athlete that's gotten paid to play their sport at a really high level that doesn't love the game. And I think he said that numerous times. Like, he fell out of love with the game. And I get that. Like, when you're growing up, as you're getting older, your tastes change. You know, things that you loved when you were a kid, maybe you don't like as much anymore. You grow, you mature, you evolve. So, man, I get it. And ultimately, I just want to say I love Tyrell. Amazing human being. He's super smart. Obviously, he went to Stanford, right? It's not like he went to random Juco community college and just effed around for a year. Like, he went to Stanford. He's a smart kid. He's got a very bright future. And and I think most importantly, I just hope he finds a path in life that gives him peace. You know, the mental health piece is. It's a huge issue right now. Uh, I think a lot of things culturally, societally are driving us in this way. Um, A lot of things that we have some control over too, right? Um, Getting out, moving more, uh, taking care of our bodies, fueling our bodies appropriately, getting enough sleep, getting off screens, um, just reconnecting with other human beings and not through a screen or not through a device. There's a lot of things that we can do, but man, the mental health piece is real. And I hope that Ty finds peace in his life going forward because he's just an amazing human being. Man, I love him so much, and and he deserves it. He deserves it. Okay, last but not least, uh, this question comes from a random podcast listener. Again, if you don't give me your real name or I can't find your real name, you just become random podcast listener or IG person or Twitter user. So final question for today is, Mike, you've talked a lot about goals for us, meaning all of you, in 2023, but I'm interested what are your goals for next year? And anytime somebody asks me about this, I always jokingly say world domination. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've said this for the last eight to 10 years now. Um, But man, I always group goals into two big buckets. I could make it tidier than that. I could make them smaller buckets. But the two big buckets for me are number one, professional, and number two, personal. So On a professional note, I think the easiest answer here is just continuing to integrate like the sports science with the Bill Hartman slash IFAST model of movement. I really think Bill is brilliant. I think he's got so much value. Um, I mean, he's just so smart, right? Like if you want to feel dumb, come hang out at IFAST and hang around Bill Hartman for a day. So you want, you want to ramp up your imposter syndrome, come hang out with me at iFast and listen to Bill talk about training or movement or rehab for anything more than 20 minutes. Uh, you will be there, trust me. Um, but I think taking Bill's model and then integrate it with the things that we can objectively show, right? So Bill's objective measures and KPIs are table tests. Well, what if I can take all the things that he can find on a table and then correlate it back to movement strategy? And say, hey, look, it's not just the fact that you lack right hip IR or whatever, but your right leg is not demonstrating the same amount of force or power production. Or you land in a different pattern or strategy on your right side versus your left, and I can show you here with this force plate. 
Like that's what I'm super excited about. And I feel like, honestly, this has just rejuvenated me to a whole new level because as excited as I am about movement, we've talked about it so many times, movement efficiency is like the core of my training philosophy, being able to be more objective about it and kind of tie all these pieces together, man, that's really exciting for me. So that would be number one. Uh, With regards to the podcast, I think you're going to see some subtle changes in format. I think the big thing that I want to do is continue to dive deeper. Now, I don't ever want to have a Tim Ferriss style podcast where I have people on two, two and a half, three hours. Um, I think that's great. It works for for Tim, and I think the people that he interviews require that amount uh, of time to really like get into all of the things that they bring to the table. But I think what I want to get away from are some of the shorter, uh, more surface level interviews and really try and find world-class experts and really dive in even deeper. Um, so look for the show length to probably go up in 2023. So you're probably going to see some changes to the format. I want to continue to find great guests. Now, not everybody is going to be a world-class expert in whatever their respective domain is, but as always, the people that I bring on do something at a world-class level, and sometimes it's just their mindset and their approach. There are some people that we've had on this show that you've probably never heard of, but if you go back and you listen to their episode, you're like, damn, that person's doing great work. That is my my job, and my goal is to find great people to highlight on this show. So probably going to see some changes with the format of the podcast. Continue to write. In case you haven't noticed, I've been cranking out a lot more written material lately. Uh, I realize that can't happen forever. Uh, You know, kind of April to September is my core training and coaching time. So I can't keep the output up during that period. But man, right now when I'm not coaching as much and I have time to integrate all these thoughts and ideas, I'm going to continue to write as much as I can. I hope you enjoy it. And I firmly believe there is a place for long-form content. As much as I enjoy the reels and some of the quick hit tips, there's value in those, but I think there's also a lot of value in the longer-form content. So if you enjoy those, please help me out. Share those. Let other people know what I'm doing or things that you like uh, because that just gives me more juice, right? And I feel like even with my list and my audience and, and the network that I have access to, there are still times it feels like I'm just shouting into an empty forest. So if you enjoy the written content, please share it, help me promote it. I mean, there's new products, new stuff I wanna work on. Uh, you know, Back in the day, I did a program design mentorship. Small group, like 10 coaches, but pretty in depth. I'm thinking about bringing that back. Uh, I've thought about recreating bulletproof knees in some form or fashion. I, I just had so many clients and athletes over the last two to three years that have had ongoing or continuous knee stuff, right? Most of the people that I work with, we've gotten them out of it, right? Maybe not everybody's 100%, but people that have failed other places have come to us and we've had success. So thinking about recreating that, Joel and I have talked about doing some work together. So there's new products. Man, there's so much stuff that I wanna do. I just gotta try and figure out a time to contain uh, all the enthusiasm and focus and channel it So I get stuff done. So professionally, a lot going on. Personally, I want to continue to stay locked in. I feel like this has been one of my best years with regards to tying all of the big pillars together. And 
if you know my four big pillars, they are training, nutrition, recovery, mindset, something I talk a lot about in my RTS annual program, but I wanna stay locked in on those. This has been a great year for me training-wise for the most part. Nutrition has probably been as good as it's ever been in my life. It shows in my body comp, in my energy, so I wanna keep that going. Sleep, recovery, again, made that a priority years ago. Pretty locked in on that. And then making sure that the mindset and the meditation stays in there as well because I think they're super valuable. So trying to keep all four of those those pillars as balanced as possible. And then the final personal goal is to just continue to work to meet my family where they're at as a husband and father. Uh, So just like you change, everybody around you is changing as well right? Everybody else has 24 hours in their day to have experiences, ups, downs, highs, lows. So when it comes to being a husband or being a father, the goalposts are always shifting, right? I mean, it's crazy to think about my daughter is going to be 12 in like a month and a half. My son just turned nine. And I was looking back at pictures of them. I remember when I could hold either of them in my forearm and like a football, right? I mean, I remember those days. So As they get older, as they mature, the things that they need from me as a father change. So just trying to always meet them where they're at, be the the husband or father that they need me to be, while still trying to blend my own personal needs and desires into that. And I think, man, it's not easy, right? I'm not perfect at it. I always come back to like, there's what we aspire to be and then who we really are. And you try and just narrow that gap as much as possible. I feel like I get a little closer every year, but man, the, the, the landscape is always changing. So those are some of my goals for 2023. They're ambitious. Yes. Uh, but man, I wouldn't live life any other way. I can't deal with just kind of plugging and chugging along. I got big goals, big things I want to achieve. And I hope you're here and you're along with me for the ride. Cause man, 2023 is going to be legit. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode of the Physical Prep Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did, please do me a favor. Share this with a friend, family member, loved one, colleague, fellow coach, trainer, rehab professional, athlete, whoever you feel like would benefit from some of the things we talked about in this episode. If you would share it with whatever means you have available to you, I would truly appreciate it. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. Have a happy Happy holiday season, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.